We can praise God that He has delivered us, as Colossians says, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. Amen. Well, again, we want to welcome you to this Lord's Day gathering, and we're, we're doing something new for our church, so we're using the Apostles' Creed as a, kind of a guide to preach the Scriptures, and so it's just giving us the framework, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, but if you're a guest with us, again, we're delighted to have you here today, and uh, we would love for you to stick around after uh, the service. We have some refreshments across the parking lot and the other building and then multiple options for smaller classes which are a great way to get to know folks and we'd love to spend that time with you uh jk thanks for coming up and reading and i just jk is uh the leader of our good news club we have several folks in the church who go into the uh to fedville elementary school on wednesday afternoons and will be starting up very soon and uh, have an after-school program teaching these students the scriptures and sharing the gospel with them, singing songs as you got to hear. I hope somebody was recording that. Um, but uh, it's just it's a great, great way to serve and to, to, to um, make disciples here in, in this community where the Lord has placed us. And so if that's a ministry that you're interested in, please talk to JK. It's not too late to be part of it. There are still some training opportunities. You have to you have to go through uh, uh, um, uh, like a morning training session, and so, but that's still an opportunity. So, if that interests you, please, uh, please see J.K. and I know they'd love to have some more folks helping out. Um, one other quick announcement before we get into the text, and this will connect right in with the, the message here. But um, uh, many of you know John and Rachel Sherwood. If you're new here, and those names don't ring a bell at all. Uh, they they have been missionaries of Baraka for years, and they were sent to the Philippines. They've been in Morocco. They've served in the leadership of a mission agency, and now they're they've been serving for the past several years here in in Atlanta and working with international students at Georgia State University. And so, hundreds of international students from all over the world coming from many of these coming from closed countries where Christians don't have the opportunity to go in as missionaries, and here they are landing here for higher education. And, and so they're working with those international students and have just great gift set, skill set to do that, having lived other parts of the world and understanding the challenges that come with being out of your home country. And so uh, anyway, they're, they're, they're get jumping back into that after being on a, away on a period of sabbatical. And, and so I just highlight that, if, again, if this is an area of, of ministry that interests you, or something you want to inquire more about, um, please reach out to them. You can find their email address in our directory or cell phone, and you can reach out to them. They'd love to talk with you if this is something you're interested in. There's opportunities to host students for holidays, like Thanksgiving, and, and uh, when they get breaks from school, they, it's um, great to have them in your home for meals or even spend the night, spend the weekend. Many of students have come and worship with us on Sundays, first time ever in a church for, for many of them, and and so there's other just ways to connect with them and events and they have Bible studies throughout the year and you're welcome to go up there and participate in those. Uh, so if you're interested in that ministry, please talk with them. More immediately, uh, on Labor Day, we have done this, I think, five or six times now. We, we Brooke and I, our family, we host a Labor Day picnic that working with John and Rachel uh, for international students. And many of you have been part of this before in one way or another. And uh, so, again, if you're new, it's been a couple of years since we've done this. But on Labor Day, we'll have a number of students, a number of these international students come down 
spend the day with us. And, and there's several ways that you can help if you're interested. Uh, we would love to have some of you come and attend and be part of it and mingle with the students and talk with them. <coughs> and so if that's, if that's something that interests you, talk to Brooke or myself. Uh, we also will need donations of food and drinks and, or, or money so that food and drinks can be purchased. And so there, there may be other transportation needs and other things that are ways you can serve. That's coming up really quick, and, and we're kind of putting it together quickly uh, as John and Rachel are getting back. Um, but just giving you a little heads up, be looking for an email this week, and we'll have more details and ways to get involved. But if, if you want to talk with Brooke or myself and you have interest in that, please do so. <coughs> well, that connects right in with the message. I was thinking about this with these international students that we've gotten to know over the last several years since John and Rachel have been up there at Georgia State. One of the things that's interesting, many of them are coming to the United States from their countries. Maybe they're, they have, their schools have a partnership with Georgia State, and so they do their first two years in, in country. They come here and do their second two years, or many are coming and doing graduate degrees at Georgia State. Uh, but they're usually here for one to two, three years maybe, uh, some longer if they're doing doctoral work. But in, in that short period of time with this full load of classes, and they most of them are straight-A students, just work really hard in school, doing graduate work in a, in a second language. Some of them are coming here and learning English as they're going to university. But this is the thing that's always fascinated me, is they see more of the United States than I've ever seen. They travel like crazy. And they, if they get a three-day weekend, they are all over the place. And I see a little Instagram post, and I'm, I've never been there in my life. I've always wanted to go there. But they, they come here with this open map and all of this enthusiasm and this plan to see as much as they can of the United States in the, the time that they have here. And so they, they, most of them, very few of them, I would say, go home with the impression that all of the United States looks like Atlanta or North Central Georgia. No, they, they have... They, they know how varied the, the terrain is in the United States and, and from coast to coast. And so if you could chart my United States travel, and if you had a map and put pins on all the places that I go, particularly if you put a pin every time I was there, uh, with very few exceptions, there would be the same pattern repeated over and over and over. Basically, it's I-20 between Atlanta and Abilene, and with a few little branches off of that. Um, we, we have our, our family travel ruts, and so there's so much of the United States we haven't seen, so many cities, states, whole regions that we've not been to. I've never been to the Northwest. And, I mean, famous landmarks, historical sites, uh, beautiful scenery. And so, so my view of the United States is really pretty imbalanced, even though I'm a citizen here, based, based upon the parts, and it's based upon the parts I tend to stay in. And so I, I theoretically know there's more out there. I mean, I'm not oblivious to the sites. I, I've seen videos, I've seen photographs, I've heard stories and heard of your travels. Uh, and, but, but my mental image, if I'm just thinking about the United States, it's, it's kind of a blend of Georgia and Texas with a little bit of Southern California mixed in. And that's, that's essentially it. Now, last week we talked about, as we're introducing this series on the Apostles' Creed, it's like a zoomed out map of Christianity, of this is what Christians believe and at, at, at a high elevation and seeing the whole, the whole map, the whole country as it were. And so it doesn't show us great detail, but it gives us this big picture of what Christians believe, of what the Bible teaches about Christianity. And so the ground level terrain is the Bible. It's, this, is, this is what's 
what the, 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 is, is showing a map of. It's, it's the scripture. So the creed, though, it's like that high satellite image or that zoomed out map of, of it all. But one of the reasons it's so good and helpful to study creeds like this, these historic creeds, is we can linger in certain parts of the Bible, uh, of, of, of the biblical terrain, and develop an imbalanced view of the Christian faith. We can, we can have our biblical and theological ruts. We can have passages and truths that we linger in and we stay in and we just stay and we stay and we neglect others. And so this creed and others like it, they, it helps us have a more balanced understanding of the Bible, of Christian doctrine. And we get to, we get to see, see it all and, and see, see a greater perspective. So if you tend to think of Christianity as a very private, individual, uh, personal thing, it's, it's Jesus and me, it's, He's my personal Lord and Savior, that's glorious truth. And that's right. But, but that's, that's not the whole picture. And perhaps your, your, your image of Christianity is a little imbalanced. There is the Holy Catholic Church, the worldwide church, the communion of saints. We confess that we believe this. So, so maybe that's an area where you need a little more balance. Maybe you, maybe you love studying the historical Jesus and, and you know the chronology of Jesus' earthly ministry by heart and you, you can chart it all out. And that's wonderful and that's so important and to look at that in the gospel accounts. But if you end up thinking of Jesus only in terms of past tense and, and you, you neglect the present, His present ministry among us through the Holy Spirit... Or, or, or his future return, then you can, you can be out of balance. So again, it helps us maintain that balance so we don't just think it's, this is all there is. We all have this tendency. This preacher does. And, and so th- this creed is going to help us become better balanced and we'll get to see the whole picture. So last week, just introduced the study. First two words, I believe. And we said Christianity is creedal. It, it, creedal creed means just I believe. It comes from the Latin word credo. And so Christianity is rooted in I believe, we said, not I've done. It's, it's focused on our faith in, the, in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so that's the essence. And so what matters most about I believe, about our creed, it's the object of our belief. The object of our faith. Who is it that we believe in? Who is it that we trust? You say, I Creed says, I believe in God. Well, there are many, many people, religious and non-religious people, who, who would say they believe in God. But who is this God we profess to believe? And that's what we're going to begin to see as we walk through this creed together. A.W. Tozer has famously written these words in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. What comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. And so it is. What we, what we mean when we say we believe in God tells us so much about ourselves, individually and even as a church, brothers and sisters. And so our view of God, and, and, it, can be, and it can become out imbalanced. And this creed helps us gain that biblical balance again, and we'll do that. We'll see that even this morning. So one quick comment before we jump in to our outline. The only reason we know about God is because God has graciously revealed himself to us. And so God has revealed himself to everyone by general revelation, primarily through what he has made. And, and so Romans 1.20, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So 
He goes on, the whole world is without excuse. And we, we have this revelation of God that he exists and, and some of his attributes and, and there's that general revelation, but that's not sufficient to save. And so God has also then showed himself by way of special revelation, this, this way of salvation, and he's shown that to us in the scriptures. And so Al Mohler sums it up this way, without God's revelation of himself, we would all be utterly lost. We are not sufficiently intelligent, clever, or perceptive enough to come to a true knowledge of the true God on our own. So, so that's the first thing we see. If we're gonna, anything we know about God, anything we're going to profess to know about God, it, it's because God has revealed that to us. And it's His grace, he's grace to do so. All right, two, two broad categories. The first one we're just going to say in passing. So we want to say, what, what, do, what does Scripture say about, what do, we, what do we learn about this God for whom, whom we profess to believe? First, what does the creed say? What's the map say? What's the big, big uh, national, nationwide map say? Well, one of the things it shows us, and again, we said this last week, and we'll talk more about this as we go through, is that God is triune. Is, it, is there, what we see in this creed is very clear in the way that it's structured. There, there is this one God, and this one God eternally exists in these three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God. And so I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And so there's this eternally singular and pluralness uh, to God. He, the, the Father, Son, and Spirit, they're, they're personally distinct, yet essentially one. Now, can, you wrap our, can we wrap our minds fully around that? No. But we, we, we trust what God has revealed. Again, God has revealed this of Himself in His Word, and so we trust it. But today, our focus is on God the Father. And the Creed says, and we confess this together, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. And again, our aim in this series is to see that zoomed out map, but then to get down into the, to, to, the, into the terrain of the scriptures. And so we want to do that this morning. We're going to do that each week. And so there are so many passages we could go to, to see what God has revealed about himself as the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. But we're going to drop in on Isaiah 40, which J.K. read a moment ago. And so this is the second heading is what is the Bible? What does the actual terrain tell us? about God the Father. And so, again, we're going to zoom in on Isaiah 40, and he's going to help us answer this question, who is this God in whom we believe? Specifically, God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. And so a little little background to Isaiah 40. I realize we're just helicoptering in here, middle of a passage, middle of a book, at a transition within the book. But Isaiah's prophecy is speaking to the people of Israel, to to God's chosen people. And in Isaiah 40, he's he's speaking to them, most agree, while they're in exile. And so Judah's in captivity in Babylon. They're under the thumb of this powerful empire, uh, the Babylonian Empire, and they've conquered them. They've taken them from their land. They've destroyed their temple. They, They are oppressing them. And so they've gone from being these citizens of this glorious kingdom... But the Lord is their king, and, and now they're under the dominion of this foreign nation. And away out of the land. They've been stripped of their land, stripped of their national dignity. They're, they're in shambles as a people. They're weary. They're suffering. 
And so in Isaiah 40, verse 1, we didn't read this a moment ago, but before the passage J.K. started in, we read these words right out of the beginning. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Comfort. And so the, the passage we're looking at, it's intended to bring comfort to God's people in their suffering. How does God do that? How does, how does God comfort them? How does He comfort us in the midst of our suffering? What He doesn't do is just give us a technique. You know, He doesn't say, just do these three things and then you'll be comforted. Now, what does He do? He tells us what to believe. He tells us what to believe. He gives us doctrine. He gives us, we'd say, theology proper, the study of, of God Himself. So our, our passage that we're focusing on begins in verse 9 with this call to comfort. And he says, say to, your pe- say to the people, Behold your God. To comfort the people of Israel, Isaiah tells them, Behold your God. To comfort you today, I want to tell you the same thing. Behold your God. He is almighty. And He is good. He is, he's full of power and might and none can resist Him and He is abounding in steadfast love. And so that'll be the, the bulk of our time will be under these, these, these subheadings here. Just God is great and God is good. We recognize those words from a little prayer that many of us use as children. But God the Father is great. He is almighty. After this initial call to behold your God, the very first thing we're told about Him is His strength and might. Look at verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. So when we say He's God Almighty, we're we're affirming His power, His strength, His greatness. The, The greatness and power is displayed in several of his attributes. And we'll just run through a few of those. He, we see it in this omnipotence. Omnipotence just means he's, he's all-powerful. Uh, Augustine, who was an early Christian leader in North Africa, he defined omnipotence this very simply. God's ability to do whatever he wills. Whatever God wants, whatever he wills, he does. That's the idea of verse 10. He comes with might. His arm rules for him. And then it says, His reward is with him and his recompense before him. Now, a recompense, a reward, it's, it's usually something we would get after completing a task. So, you, you win a game or something, you get a reward. Unless it's upward sports and then everybody gets a reward, right? Uh, but, but God comes and before He even starts the task, His reward, His recompense is already before Him. Because there's no possibility that God will fail to accomplish what He wills. Everything He wills, He does. There's no power that's greater than Him. Who, nobody can stop Him. Psalm 135, verse 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven, and on earth, in the seas, and all the deeps. Now, we are not like that, are we? We, we, don't, we, we have almost no category for this. We, we want to do things, but we so often quickly get frustrated. Uh, because there are forces outside of us that are way more powerful than us. I want there to be no mosquitoes in my backyard. Anybody else? Okay, yes. But it seems no matter how bad I want that, <laughs> there are more powerful forces at work out there. Namely, apparently, the reproductive powers of mosquitoes or something like that. I, I want no mosquitoes to bite me or my family or my guests. I, 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 but they keep biting and we keep scratching. 
And, and, I, and I've done a lot of things to get rid of them. Maybe I've reduced the population slightly. It's hard to know that they're still around. And I can't kill them because there's something more powerful than me. I mean, that's a silly illustration. God has never had an experience like that. God has never had the experience of, oh, I wanted to do that, but I just, I just couldn't. No, he, he never will have that experience. It's impossible. <laughs> His omnipotence is demonstrated primarily here in this text through, through His creation, His power over creation. He's, he's maker of heaven and earth. This is what we confessed in the creed together. And He rules over them. So verse 12, right after this description, we're directed to consider this question, who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand? <laughs> of course, God doesn't literally have hands, but this is a poetic way of, of, of helping us think about the created world around us and God's authority, God's rule over it. If you took all the water of the earth and, and, and you were to make this sphere out of it, I didn't figure these calculations, but I read this, so I'm trusting it. It would be 860 miles in diameter. The volume of that would be, if you're already calculating this, my Kutzel, 332,500,000 cubic miles. I have, I have no idea how to think about that. Oh, there's no reference for me there. Yet we're told here that this, this is the image. This massive watery sphere, sphere would be like a drop of sweat that falls in your palm of your hand to God. Again, these are, these are poetic images, but it's showing the power of God. The truth is there. He made it all. He made all of that by simply speaking, and it was Genesis one. It says in verse twelve that he marked the heaven, marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure. It's like he takes out a ruler and says, "Okay, it's that big." You know, just a couple hand widths, all the soil, all the dirt, in the measuring spoon. No big deal to him. He goes on, who, who has weighed the mountains and scales and the hills and the balance? Like he takes the Himalayan mountains, the Andes, and all these big mountain ranges and, and weighs them on a scale like we weigh bananas in the grocery store, produce aisle. It's, it's nothing. It's simple. And he does it without any assistance. Verse 13, what man shows him his counsel? He's not looking, he's not looking for input from others. He's not, he's not asking for a brainstorming session here. He, he, is, he works, as one person said, with unaided wisdom. This means he's not only omnipotent, but he's omniscient. Omniscient. That's, it means he's all-knowing, he's all-wise. That's another attribute that, we, that points to his almighty nature. When he goes to accomplish his task, he knows exactly how to get them done without any help. He's omniscient. There's, there's an entire consulting industry in our world today and some of you may be part of that and I'm sure some of you have uh, taken advantage of this industry but God has never had to hire a consultant he, he needs no outside help it's never how do I figure this out how, how, do, how do I get this done how do I solve this problem he always knows no one, no one can ever tell him you know hey maybe you should do it this way instead that happens to me all the time and usually they're right no, whatever he pleases, he does, and he is wise, wise enough to accomplish it. Verse 14, whom did he consult, and, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, taught him knowledge, showed him the way of understanding? And we're getting, we're getting there to another attribute of God that points to his almighty nature, and it's, it's an old world. We, 
word we don't use often, but aseity. Aseity. It's a kind of theological word. You probably don't use it in other areas of life, but it just means that God is, God is not dependent on anything outside of himself for his existence, for his being. God is, God is depending on nothing outside of himself. You, you look, go back in verse 13 again. And um, where, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? No, nobody's there. Nobody's doing that. He is, he is dependent on no one outside himself. Again, for you and I to exist, we are dependent upon God creating us. We're dependent upon two people procreating. We're dependent upon every day for ongoing life. We need oxygen and we need water and we need food and we need shelter. We need all of these things just to, so we can, we can have bodily life that goes on. Any, at any moment, we're de- totally dependent. And God is not like us in that way at all. There's, there's never been, there will never be any lack in God. He won't need, need anything outside of himself. That's not why he made the world. It's not why he made us, because he lacks something and he's filling that up. No, he has a saity. He's everything he needs in himself. And then we get to another, another feature, another attribute of God that points to who he is as the Almighty One, is his eternality. Down in verse 28, Isaiah calls him the, the everlasting God. He's the one who has, we'll come back to this verse in a moment, but he has no beginning. No, he will have no end. He just is. He is the I am. And so, and, and as this everlasting God, he, he not only created uh, by his infinite power, but he continues to rule everything by his infinite power. Now, go back to verse 15. Look at what he says. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and they're counted as the dust on the scales. What an image. This dust that just kind of lands on there. Behold, we just wipe off, you know, real quick. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. Less than nothing. I don't even know how you can be less than nothing. Um, I, I, but, but that's what the nations are to God. Less than nothing. Emptiness. That says they don't even register on the scales when, when God weighs out their significance. I mean, today, China, Russia, the United States, North Korea, nothing, less than nothing. It's dust. I mean, weight is one of those images in the Bible that is used to describe something significant. And we use it the same way today. We, you know, uh, we say something, something that's weighty, that's heavy. What are we saying? We're saying that's significant. What you're going through, it's, it's significant. It's heavy, it's weighty. Well, the Bible does that all the time, too. And, and one of the words, one of the common words, is the word for glory in the Old Testament. It's kavod. It's, it's heaviness. It's, it's God is significant. He's weighty. And so Isaiah is saying, in comparison to God, the weightiest, the most significant, the most important people and nations throughout human history, they haven't even tipped the scale. They don't even register a number. In fact, they're less than nothing. In some strange way, the scale actually goes up when you put them on there. Verse 22, all the inhabitants of earth are like grasshoppers. Verse 23, he brings princes to nothing. He makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Verse 24, these mighty rulers, he blows on them and reduces them to, to stubble. When you think about how much 
time and energy and thought and attention in the news we give to presidents and kings and dictators and 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 the like and for us even just wealthy business people and and celebrity entertainers and professional athletes and on and on they seem so weighty they seem so significant they have so much power in our world it seems and i mean their will is routinely done by other people around them i mean they 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 can generally say i want it and it's going to happen this is what they are to god there's nothing. It's dust. It's dust. Less than nothing. He rules over the nations, the rulers, and he continues to rule over all of his creation. Verse 26, even the heavenly bodies. I mean, we, you look up at the night sky if you don't live in the city, but if you can get out, out away from the light pollution, look up and see all of those stars. Who put them there? Who keeps them in their place? Verse 26, it's by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power that not one of them is missing. I mean, so it's the almighty God. It's his power that's the reason those stars are in the same place today that they were yesterday and they'll be there tomorrow. Yes, the, the, we, we, I know you maybe, maybe you're a skeptic and I'm glad you're here. We're honored to have you with us and you're thinking, ah, oh, yeah, but the stars are held in place. It's, it, it's, it's the relative gravitational pull of, uh, of their mass versus other massive objects in outer space. That's what keeps the stars in their place. And in fact, everything's in motion. You know, but the stars aren't ultimately governed by gravity. They, they, are, they and we are governed by God who created gravity, gravity and all of these laws and motion of particles and uses it all as his servant. But, all right, this passage is not here to give us this built-out extended logical argument for God's existence. That's not the point. It simply says, Behold your God. Behold your God. See Him. Open the, the eyes of your heart, of your mind, and see your God for your comfort. Because the assumption of the passage, and the assumption of the entire Bible, really, isn't, is, is that the big, the big hang-up for us is not the uh, the big problem we face isn't a logical challenge over whether or not God really does exist. That's not, that's not where we really get tripped up. The big problem is that we suppress the knowledge of God um, that is clearly there in everything that he's made. Romans tells us. It's when we look up at the scar- stars, we don't simply say, you know, there, there may be another way to explain those and how they stay in place it's that we look up and we say you know i want there to be another way to explain those stars i want there to be another way explaining them that gets god out of the equation i want there to be a substitute for him something else and a substitute for god is what the bible calls an idol an idol it's why in this passage, after singing the praise of, of, of the majesty of god the question that gets put to us in verse 18 is not who then will deny the existence of God? That's not his point. That's not the question. The question is, to whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you com- compare with him? An idol! Exclamation point. God is the maker of heaven and earth, but verse 19 says, an idol is something we make. It's something we do anytime we, we say this common thing you hear today. I, I, I just prefer to think of God in this way. I prefer to think of God as this. We're making Him, we're fashioning Him, and that's, 
this ridiculous scenario. Is that, no, no, you have these craftsmen and they use gold and they, they wood and they carve this thing and it's, it's crazy. We're making this. We're manufacturing it. And you see what's going on. You're saying, I'm going to create, I'm going to make something different uh, from what God has revealed himself to be. But if God is real, you can't just do that with him. He is who he is. Anything that's real, you, you can't do that with. I mean, you, you, you can't walk into this room and say, I prefer to think of this room as turquoise. Because it just fits me better. No. The, the walls aren't turquoise. I don't know what color they are. But they're not turquoise. Um, I can't look at one of my daughters and say, I prefer that you be a curly redhead. Because uh, that's, no, that's insulting. That's not who she is. That's not reality. The, the true God is real. You can't just remake him into something else without making a substitute for him, without making an idol. We must receive God for who he really is. And Isaiah, Isaiah again, he's pointing out the folly of idolatry here. You, you make this idol, you hire craftsmen, you carve it, you get the goldsmith, you do all of this, and it's a statue. It can't move can't do anything it can't save you it can't it can't even do anything i don't know you say i don't worship statues i'm not superstitious now there are people around the world who do there are people around us who do it's not just some primitive problem for distant peoples uh, but an idol isn't just a statue again an idol is a substitute for the true god it's a god that you make rather than the god who made you it's anything you ascribe ultimate authority to. Any, anything that you, that you make to be the most weighty, significant thing in your life. That you ascribe worth and weight and significance to. Greater than God. And we are all natural born idolaters. We are all worshipers. It's not a question of whether we worship God or not. It's a matter of wh- who we worship. What we worship. Where do we tap real meaning in life from? But the problem is, everything we worship besides the true God fails us every time. Our idols always eventually eat us alive. They, they always ruin us. And so the question that Isaiah asked, to whom have you likened God? To what have you likened God? Where do you tap real meaning in life from? Again, we, we, we come out of the womb as idolaters, but... But even when the Lord redeems us and saves us from that idolatry and, and makes us his children, the pull to idolatry is still strong. And this is why John writes at the end of his letter of 1 John, the last words of this letter, little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is a, this is a struggle for us as believers. Our idols can be the approval of people. They can be a big bank account, abundance of possessions, a job title, a stress-free, stress-free life, adventure, sex, a reputation, on and on and on. What are we ascribing weight worth to? If you want to know what the idols may be in your life, just, just look at what's eating you alive right now. What gets you stressed? What gets you anxious? That could be an indicator. What really has you dejected and despairing? What can you not be happy without having it? What do you excessively worry about losing? What gets, what gets you angry when it's threatened? What do you run to when you're having a hard time in life? What, 
What are you most proud of? What do you want to be known for? What, what could you not live without? You see, these questions are helping us. So, okay, there are things that I ascribe weight to, I ascribe significance to, significance to I, that I substitute for God. And you take those things, you pull them up, and dangling from those roots, you find the things that you're trying to tap meaning in life from. You find the things that you've substituted for God. You find your idols. And what do we, why do we do this? Why do we do this? Why do we keep clinging to the things that are eating us alive? Why do we need to be told, again, children, keep yourself from idols? Well, Isaiah 40, verse 27, back to Isaiah 40 here, we get a little window into what the Israelites were saying. And it's a window into what's, what we all say in our hearts at some level. Verse 27, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. That's the lie. That's it. It's the same lie the first humans believed. Remember that study of Genesis we did so, so, so long ago. Now, it's the same lie we, we all have instinctively gravitated towards. It's the, the lie is this, that yes, this God, he may be almighty, but he doesn't care. He, he doesn't care about me. He doesn't love me. He's not good. He can't, he can't be trusted. So I better make an idol. I better substitute uh, something for him that I can control. Then I can trust it. That's the lie. And the lie is a question of the goodness of God. Can God be trusted? And so we first think God is great. And we see that in so many of his attributes on display in this passage. This is what the terrain is telling us of scripture here in Isaiah 40. The other thing we see is God is good. He is good. Behold your father and he is good. So we talk a lot about uh, today. You hear, you hear these words, particularly in the business world or even just in, in the media. You, talk, you hear about uh, uh, maybe ex- different expressions, but power differentials or something like that. It's one of the buzzwords today. What we mean is, is, and it can be scary in the way it's, it's usually used in negative connotations in the sense that someone has power over someone else and they use that power to, to hurt, hurt someone who's weaker. This is what's behind sexual abuse. This is all these headlines we see of these you know, celebrities and politicians who are abusing their power uh, to abuse other people uh, who they have power over, to hurt someone else who you have power over. So how do how, people think, how do we solve this? Well, try to level the playing field. You try to get rid of the power differential, then no one will hurt the other person. Everyone has an equal amount of power. Okay, that, that doesn't work on this side of the fall. But that aside, the problem with God, though, is that he exists in this inf- infinite power differential with every human being. Let, let's say we could assign a number to your level of power. Let's say you're a four. Um, and, and God's infinity. So infinity minus four is infinity. Maybe you're really powerful. I mean, you've got, you've got people to work for you. You've got, you're, you're a mover and shaker. You got, you're a 40. Infinity minus 40 is infinity. There's this infinite power differential between us and God. That's, that's why we see this stuff in this passage about the nations being dust compared to God. They're, they are. So God exists in this infinite power differential with every human being. And so how do sinners solve it? How do we, how do we try to respond to that? We make an idol. We bring him down. We try to eliminate that power differential. 
And in fact, what we're doing when we make an idol, when we when we start pursuing, we ascribe worth and weight to something else other than God, we're actually trying to flip the differential. Because now you have the power over it. I made it. I fashioned it. It came out of my own imagination. I, and so you, you don't like something about it, you change it. You take the power because you can't trust Him to have it. So you take it. It doesn't work. It never works. Your idols can't save you. Your idols can't do anything for you other than eat you alive. And so think about it. Why do, you keep get, why do we keep getting stuck craving the appreciation, craving, craving the approval of other people when we know it's killing us? Why do we keep going to social media and, and just getting eaten up with envy and jealousy and, and shame as we look through that feed and compare ourselves to others? Why is that so important to us when we know it's killing us? Because some part of us thinks, if I can just get it right, though, I can make them like me and I can be in the driver's seat and and I'll be okay that's what we tell ourselves at least but but in an infinite power differential between us and God you're never in the driver's seat never you're at the mercy of the one who has power over you and and if he doesn't choose to love you if he doesn't choose to be good to you if he There's nothing you can do about it, and that can be scary. And that's why this lie enters in. God pays no regard. He doesn't care. It's it's especially scary when you realize not only is this infinite power, but you've sinned against this powerful God. You've offended Him. You've made yourself an enemy of this all-powerful one. You've You've got no hope before a God like that, an almighty, omnipotent, omniscient, uh, self-existing, eternal God, no hope. Unless, unless your way is not hidden from the Lord. Unless your right is not disregarded by your God. Unless He's not only God Almighty, but He's good. He's good, and so He is. God is good. The Father is good. We started our reading in verse 9 with this call to behold your God. We saw his power in verse 10. Then look what he does with that power in verse 11. What does he do with all of this power and authority and might? Verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young that's what the Almighty God, the omnipotent one who holds the waters in the hollow of his hand, who, who, uh, to whom the nations are like dust, that's what he does with his power. He, he gathers us like little sheep, carries us in his bosom, gently leads us, takes all the forces of the universe and, and that he's in control of, and he uses them to provide for us. He leads us. So back to the lie of verse 27, the lie we all believe that God has discarded our way, that our, our way is hidden from Him, the lie that He doesn't care with us, care for us. What's the answer? Verse 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? I mean, the answer is doctrine, actually. There's something we need to know. There's something we need to hear. Do you, do you not know who your God is? The Lord is the everlasting God. 
the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. We're saying, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. This is what we're speaking to ourselves. Have you not heard this? Do you, do you not understand? He gives power to the faint, verse 29. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. All this, this infinite power differential, he uses all of his strength and leverages it to strengthen the weak. And here's the great and glorious thing. In order for God, this powerful God, to strengthen the weak, he actually has to take on weakness himself. Because we're, we're cut off from the one who has infinite strength. We, 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 can't, we, can't, uh, we can't get to him. We, we need, we, we, we're cut off because of our sin. We need a power source outside of ourselves. I mean, this is Israel. They're exiled because of their sin, because they've wronged God. So are we. We're born separated from this for the same reason. We can't lead back into his presence. We can't overcome the sin that separates us. So we had to come and do it for us. And he's so good. God the Father Almighty is so loving and good that he sent his only son. One in being, one in power with his Father to earth and he came I mean, Jesus Christ is on the infinity side of the power differential and yet he came down he didn't come down to be a 40 to be a king and sit on a throne on this earth and rule in that way he came down and was born in a no name family in a no name place and then in his ultimate moment he came and died the most shameful death possible on the cross he went from infinity to zero for us Paul tells us this in Philippians. He emptied himself and became as nothing. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He went from infinity to zero. God the Father sent his Son to, to go from infinity to zero so that he could bear the wrath in our place, the wrath we deserve for carving substitutes. And he used this right to save you because by going and experiencing ultimate weakness. The weakness no one has overcome, death itself. I mean, until, until his power broke through and he overcame death and rose from the grave. So that same power could live inside of us and we could, he could give strength to us when we're weak, when we're weary, when we're suffering. And ultimately give life to our mortal bodies when we die. So verse 31, it says, It's those who wait for the Lord who shall renew their strength. Not those, not those who do lots of stuff for God. God doesn't need stuff from you. He has infinite power. It's those who wait for the Lord who receive strength from him. And they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is what it means to believe in God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We're not, we're not just acknowledging his existence. Yes, it's that, but it's a whole lot more than that. It's resting in him. It's saying, I throw my trust. I rest on him alone. I, that's how God Almighty becomes God, your Father Almighty. You'll still be a four, maybe a six, maybe a two, whatever power your power is, but you'll have this infinite power source pulsating through you as you wait on him through faith. <coughs> so what do we say? What do we need? Behold your God. 
And God doesn't speak through Isaiah here. This is what you can do, Israel. He's saying, you can't. You can't, you can't, you can't. But I can. I can. We behold our God. And, and, and what do we do as we behold our God, as we receive help from God, as we receive comfort from Him? And this is, this is what, he, what he's saying. This is where the passage begins, really. In verse 9, Go on up to the high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Now, Zion and Jerusalem, those aren't individuals' names. Those are names for the whole community. He's saying, if you belong to God's people, you've experienced comfort together, proclaim it. Proclaim it out there. I mean, there are people all around us who don't believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. They're they're worshiping and bowing down to idols, and they're being eaten by those idols, and and they're suffering, and and they're weary, and... And, but if you've experienced comfort, how, would you not, how could you not want to proclaim that to someone else? How would you not want to pass that along? Here, here's what God has done in my life. Here's what's helped me through those same things that you're going through. And proclaim it in here, brothers and sisters. This is how we counsel one another in the same way with our small groups and Sunday school classes. We're sitting around the table at Eatsy and over coffee, whatever it is. When you're in the fellowship hall, when you're, when you're weary, when you're stressed, when you're downcast, counsel one another in this way. Behold your God. Behold Him. Not, here's three things you need to do. Here's a book to read. I mean, there may be practical advice, opinions, uh, ideas like that. That's not the sum and substance of our counsel to one another primarily, ultimately, it's behold God. This is what your God is like. Let me tell you again. Let me remind you what He's done. Let me remind you of His promises. Dear brother, in our prayer meeting before the services, quoted Psalm 34, 19 to another brother who's walking through sufferings. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord uh, brings him through them all. I don't remember the exact reference. I, but, but again, it's just reminding us who God is. What He's promised. Let's proclaim that to one another. Not pat answers, not techniques. It's beholding God. May we be a, com- a community who comforts one another in this way that this passage comforts us. Who says to one another, Behold your God. The Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we get to behold you in the scriptures. We get to behold you in the face of Jesus Christ. For if we have seen you, we have seen the Father. And we, we, we thank you that one day, uh, Lord Jesus, you will come back. The Father will send you back to return in the fullness of your power and glory to reign forever. And one day we will indeed never walk again. Never, we, will, we will never again walk and faint. We will never again run and grow weary. What a glorious hope. Until that day, Lord, may we... May we rest, may we trust, may we behold you, our God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.